Hi everyone, welcome back to Firing on Film and part two of our top 10 animated films. We're going to get right back into it because we know who's on the call. <laughs> so, Holly, if you want to give us your number five. I will, um, and it's going to be very quick uh, because it's already uh, been mentioned and that is Aladdin. Um, so, yeah, for all the same reasons that I've already been pointing at, pointed out, Aladdin is absolutely brilliant. But the reason why it's so high up on my list is a, a personal connection. It's one of the first films I really fully remember watching in the cinema. Um, I think it was maybe my sixth or seventh birthday, something like that. Um, and I went to the cinema to see it with my best friend. And then we went to McDonald's and got the um, Happy Meal toy. And I got one of the a salt, little Sultan spinning top thing, um, which I really loved. And... Yeah, it was it was a whole experience. And I think Aladdin is one of the Disney films that I would find the easiest to just rewatch. If I was going to rewatch one of the older ones, like, uh, I don't know, uh, Bambi or, or Fox and the Hound or something like that, I'd have to G myself up because I'd know I was going to cry or something. Um, I think if it was a, a newer one, I wouldn't have the same connection. I think I could just very, very easily put on Aladdin and fully enjoy watching it. Um, I think the, the animation is great. I, I love the blend of CGI. I think they did it really well. Even though it was early days, they still managed it pretty well. There's one pretty dodgy scene with the carpet that looks a bit shonky. But apart from that, I think it's beautiful. Um, I love the characters. I love Abu. I love Iago. Uh, I, I, exactly what you said about Iago and um, Jafar. Uh, he's not an idiot sidekick, and that is quite notable to point out. They're, they're a partnership in crime, um, and I do enjoy that. Um, J- Jafar is just slimy and menacing and wonderful. Um, I really I loved Jasmine. As a child, I loved Jasmine. Um, and, yeah, it, it's just a cast of characters that you can fully fall in love with and, and be along for the ride with. Um, one thing that bothers me sometimes in in children's films or family films is that idea that at some point the the lead character is going to do something bad and then the second half of the film is going to be the character finding a way to apologize for it um and often we spoke about this a lot when we talked about hercules um often i don't think that's very earned um i don't think you see the character Um, making that mistake coming up because it's not in their character to make that mistake and then making that mistake usually like doing something greedy or not giving someone credit for something or forgetting about someone Um, it's not in their nature to do it so when they do it it jars and then I don't enjoy the rest of the film as much I think Aladdin nails it in that it was Aladdin's in Aladdin's nature to do the thing that he does mid-film that makes everyone dislike him um, because of his background and what he's gone through and how much he's had to hustle in the past. Um, so it makes sense to me. And I think it's where Disney did it best. Even with your top 10 choice, Ollie um, Ratatouille. Um, mm. I really love Ratatouille, but that just that little moment where the chef gets a little bit too famous and he like brushes yeah. off his girlfriend after he's been like so enamored with her it just it just rankles a little bit and it's 
uh, hundreds of films do it, hundreds of them do it, and it always jars for me. Um, but Aladdin does it well. Yeah. Um, so yeah, Al- Aladdin is fab. I won't go into any more detail because everyone knows the story, and you've already spoken about it, and I agreed with everything you said. Okay. Fair. My number five, uh, going back to the Renaissance, well, once again, um, Tarzan. Um, it's to me, it was just at that point in my life, nine years old now, where I'm really getting into films and I'm really getting into the kind of different things that Disney were doing. Um, and this was just that kind of combination of superb animation, comedy, full blown action film, I would say. And as I said on the Renaissance podcast, Phil Collins did not need to go as hard as he did on that soundtrack because that is one of the greatest film soundtracks ever, and I'm still listening to it today. Strangers Like Me, Son of Man, You'll Be In My Heart, all that kind of stuff, absolutely fantastic. I think it's got, as well, giving me memories of the video game, I remember playing the video game for PlayStation 1, um, the whole thing of, like, Sabor and can you defeat Sabor with a spear and all that kind of stuff, and I'd love to see it, actually, very similar to nowadays, like, Spider-Man games, well, like if you were Tarzan just swinging through the jungle and then having to go off and do different missions and side missions and things like that, that would be pretty mint, I'd say. Um, but yeah, Tarzan, for me, well up there with one of my favourites. That's why it's my number five. Um, Ollie? You have convinced me massively with the soundtrack as well. Like The way you explained it when we taught Disney Renaissance, that was like, that clicked something for me. It was like, you know what, yeah, I do actually just straight up love this soundtrack. Like, yeah, it's great. it's great. Absolutely great. Yeah. Um, my, five? my number five is my favorite Pixar film. Not the best. Okay. Spoilers, kind of. Uh, my favorite Pixar film, my number five, is The Incredibles. Because, again, talked about Brad Bird animating, uh, animated films before, or Brad Bird directed animated films. Incredibles just kind of does everything. It's an action film, and it's a proper act. You're talking about Tarzan being an action film, and I agree. Incredibles is just a straight-up, like, Bond film, almost. They even get the Bond vibe with uh, Michael Giacchino's excellent score. He's, like, quickly cementing himself as, like, my favourite new composer. Michael Giacchino is unbelievable. Um, The characters in this are really funny. I love how they have been drawn, like, their characters, and how their powers mimic um, their supposed personalities. Mr. Incredible is big and strong because that's what's expected of the dad. Mrs. Incredible has got to be everywhere at once, so she's elastic. Violet is incredibly shy and likes to keep people away, so she has shield abilities and likes to keep herself invisible. Dash is a hyperactive child, so he can run, run around really fast. Lucius is the coolest person on the planet. He is a nice man. Enough said. Like, the powers just perfectly emulate everything. And I love the build-up of the story. I love the villain. Syndrome is probably the best Pixar villain. Like, I, I'm open to suggestions there, but Syndrome, very fascinating backstory. I love, the, uh, people have pointed this out before, the difference in how, the C, how he remembers Mr. Incredible telling him he doesn't want a partner versus how it actually went down. 
So Mr. Like that, if you watch it again, the difference is very apparent that he has twisted it in his own mind to suit his own narrative that Mr. Incredible was horrible to him when actually Mr. Incredible was incredibly distracted with a terrorist and was trying to focus on multiple things at once. The action's great, the animation's great, the acting, the acting is great. And I do love it, and I should have kind of said this for up as well, I do love it when a kid's film isn't afraid to kill off a villain, and particularly in such a gruesome way. Syndrome gets mashed up by a plane engine. That is a brutal way for anyone to go, let alone a character in a kid's film. Um, it focuses a little bit too much on Mr. Incredible at the beginning, I think. Like, this film was marketed as a superhero family, but I I get that he, he, he starts off like that, and he's going to No Man is an Island, which is a play on No Man is an Island, because he's treating himself as an island. Oh, symbolism, get it? Um, Edna Mode, one of the funniest characters in Pixar, behind Doug, voiced by Brad Bird, is hilarious. Herbie, her showing off the different suits to Helen is one of the funniest things I've ever seen because Helen looks horrified as her her suit is having rockets launched at it and everything. Um, and it's not afraid to, it doesn't pull its punches. It, you know, you see Mr. Incredible emotionally broken because he thinks his family has been killed because the plane has been shot down. And Syndrome is just so vindictive and nasty in that moment. Just, it is amazing. It just gets everything done it is it just covers absolutely everything you would want a film to cover and the sequel got a lot of bad flack i actually love the sequel i think the villain in it gets a lot of bad flack but I, what i love about the villain is that she's i would argue the villain in incredibles 2 is the best rendition rendition of lex luther we've ever had genius level um business mogul whose primary beef against superheroes is that they make humans lazy and they make humans dependent on heroes and people end up getting hurt because of that opinion. That's the best rendition of the Le that Lex Luthor archetype that I've ever seen in film. Because the Gene Hackman one is a bit kooky and fun and he's just a greedy media mo uh, real estate mogul, as is uh, he who shall not be named in Superman Returns. But uh, Evil Endeavor... In Incredibles 2, great Lex Luthor, but the first Incredibles film, that was the one that I was, I remember got me back into Pixar and I was just watching on loop again and again because it was just, it was a great spy film, it was a great action film, it was a great comedy, you had, you just had everything, it was such a good catch-all film. I mean, I like Incredibles, I'm not a fan of the second one. Fair enough. I don't. I don't think. It, but I think it had lofty heights to reach. I'd say. How do you mean? Like because the first one's so good. Yeah, I mean, it, it it is a come down from it, and I think they could have leaned on the design of the screen slaver that they put out because that was a terrifying reveal when you first see that mm. uh, in the trailers. Even if they just made that the actual costume and you'd seen it again and again, like that would have been better. Um, but yeah, it is a come down. But I, I do, I think it is like you said because the first one was just so good. I remember thinking as well that Incredibles two was going to be the past Civil War, you know, that Violet and Dash would be all grown up and that they're kind of like Dash is butting heads with his dad a bit, and that that would be the central conflict of the film. Mm -hmm. And 
I remember and like Robert's passed it and is still trying to be the patriarch of the family. Dash is now an adult and he's he's inexperienced, but he thinks he knows better and they end up butting heads. And I thought that could like that would have been the yeah. direction I would have gone in. But but that first one, but when when the family actually come together and you see Dash running that, that sequence with Dash running through the forest and when he realizes he can run on water and he just does that like pure childlike laugh of <laughs> and they just runs and then they start shooting machine guns at him and he's just like nah I'm faster just so many yeah. great sequences no it is good it is good um, okay number four is um, I'm going to kick us off with our number four again one that I don't really have to mention too much about um, Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse um, because for me it was the surprise of being then a 28-year-old man going to the cinema, going watching an animated film just because it was Spider-Man and just because people were raving about it and then going, oh, actually, this is pretty good, isn't it? This isn't like a kiddie-type film that I, that I expected. Um, Ollie, we spoke about this on the podcast series of Spider-Man that we did. Like, I was utterly convinced this was the test of can we do a multiverse? Um, and it went that well that they did it in the actual film. Um, and it just it combines so many different things of this idea. Like this was my introduction to Miles Morales. Like I'd heard of him, and I wasn't aware of him. But this was like this is a completely different Spider-Man. Uh, Spider-Man even you then see multiple iterations of Peter Parker, but then all the other callbacks of like different like animations of um, you know you got Spider Gwen, you've got Spider Man Noir, Spider Pig. Um, the Japanese anime version, um, all the different things that they threw in at it. But then as well, using the lore of Spider-Man. So you put a different twist on Octavius, you put a different twist on um, some of the other villains, but then introducing the Prowler. Like that little mm. musical motif of the Prowler every time that he's on screen. Brilliant. Absolutely love it. Um, and then it's just added more to me now going playing the Miles Morales game and stuff like that, that I'm, I think I'm ready for an on-screen Miles Morales, like a live-action Miles. I think it's now time, and we should get there, and we should do that. Um, but, yeah, my number four, Into the Spider-Verse, it's a great film, and I'm really looking forward to the sequel, actually, that by the time this podcast goes out, we'll be coming out this year. Um, mm. Part one of it as well, so interesting. Yeah. Do you remember all the hype around No Way Home and the trailer, be, and like it not being far from No Way, and then... Sony drop and into the Spider Verse Two trailer, and we were just like, "Oh, forget that for a second. We need to hype <laughs> over this." <laughs> Let's go and have a look at this one. Mmm, this one's shiny. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, it's gonna be good, isn't it? Like across the Spider Verse, like yeah, it's it's gonna be great. Mm. It's really gonna be great. I loved Into the Spider Verse. It was so good. Nick but Cage. So many people, I mean, come on. Yeah, so many people who aren't even Spider Man fans are like. I, I love that film. I think it's great, you know, even critically. It's gorgeous. It, yeah. It's absolutely insanely gorgeous. Mm. And the way that they've done it is so that it looks like comic book panels. Like, again, I said this on our podcast, Ollie, like, when I teach aesthetics, so the way that a film work, looks, I show the students this first because it's like, it, it, it's designed to look a certain way. And mm. that is that you're reading a comic book. Bagel. Just, bagel. just bagel. Done little, done little bits. Come on, that's, anyway. that's 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 one of the funniest things I've ever seen. Bagel, bagel, <laughs> um, bagel. Ollie, 
Number four. Ole, I'm really sorry. I'm really sorry. Beauty and the Beast. I mean... It made the top five. Mm. I appreciate. Mm. This is the best Disney film. I will hear no arguments. I will hear no counterpoints. This is objectively the best Disney film. It is the best, it is the best film they have ever put out. It is likely to be the best film they ever will put out. It is not my favourite. You know fine well what my favourite is, but this is the best. This is absolutely the best Disney film because similar to The Incredibles, it has everything you could want from a film. It deals with the emotional side of it just so, so well. That story is so classic. And like Holly talked about this when we did the Renaissance podcast, the way it slightly twists the classical story so that it is Beast who's got to get over his vanity versus Belle getting over hers. Um, Gaston, a really interesting villain in that he's not this classical Disney mold that we've seen in the past of spiteful and wants to kill a child or wants to take over the world or anything like that. He's just a really entitled bloke. He's a bloke who's had privilege his entire life and that privilege is starting to slap him in the face a bit and he doesn't like it and he can't handle it. And it's just, that's a much more relatable villain than as much as I love Ursula and I love Jafar and I love Scar. And even Scar has a bit more of that relatability, you know, je a jealous sibling. I don't personally have that because I'm an only child, can't you tell? But um, yeah, Gaston is just, everybody knows the Gaston. Everybody knows the bully. Everybody knows the guy who thinks that much of himself. And, and everybody knows the worst kind of bully is the one that everybody else seems to love. Everyone loves the sports star in the school who just like shoots down on you a bit. Just everyone's familiar with that character. Um, animation still holds up to this day. Um, the fact that this was in contention for best picture, not best animated film, because I don't even know if that was a category at that point, best picture, and it lost out to Silence of the Lambs, which, fair enough. <laughs> fair enough, it losing out to one of the best films ever made, that's fine. And characters are great, songs are great, Lyrics are very clear. Every single song does exactly what I want a song to do in a musical, and it informs the story. It informs something about the characters. It moves the plot along. It conveys emotion that talking about it just wouldn't be enough to adequately get across what is being shown to us right now. And it's a flawless film. I can't, I can't, the only, the only criticism I ever hear is that Belle is a bit too perfect, but I think, like I've said in, in the past again, I think people have that criticism against Belle because other characters have come along later and done it in a much more kind of jarring way where it's like, oh, they are perfect and there's nothing wrong with them and that's a bit, eh, no, I can't be dealing with that. Whereas Belle, as far as I'm aware, there's not really any characters done like her before. And she isn't like prim and proper and perfect. She is quick to anger. Well, quick to anger. She can get angry. She has a personality. She has something about her. And even the Stockholm Syndrome thing, I used to kind of meme that and laugh about that. She has the opportunity to leave, but she doesn't take it because Beast is mortally wounded, having tried to save her life. And she's a, she's a good person who's like, well, I could escape and I want to escape, but he just saved my life. I can't let him die. And 
because you can't tell how much time that film uh, uh, occurs over, you can believe that there's like snippets that you don't see where, you know, the romance blossoms quite naturalistically. They do kind of ruin that in the show. The show gives you much more of an indication that it's happening over maybe a week, whereas the film could be happening over like a few months. And that would in theory be enough time for this relationship to kind of blossom out of what it, where it starts. And yeah, started subverting expectations, perfectly animated, songs are perfect, characters are perfect, 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 perfect. What more can I say? I'm going to spoil my list and just apologise now that it's not on it. Shame. Yeah. Shame. That, so I, you don't I'm need to apologise to Holly that it's only number four. Mm. It's just not you, on mine. So. Get on your oh, well. knees. <laughs> I don't I don't blame you one little bit. It's That's about our it's about our favorites, not the best. I'm expecting and... full judgment for my three and two, by the way, which is yeah. <laughs> I, judgment. You're gonna get it. You're gonna judge me very harshly as well. Because it's minions and despicable meat. <laughs> no, it's not. <laughs> <laughs> God, I remember Gemma saying that in her top yeah. her top ten films of all time. And she had Despicable Me at 10. And that was the only animated film she oh, had no. on there. She had Minions at 10. It wasn't even Despicable Me. It was Minions. <laughs> it was Minions? Yeah. Are you sure? Yeah. Okay, that's even worse. <laughs> God. Um, right. Because the thing about Being the Beast, it's not left my head since me and Amy went to watch the stage show. Because um, the stage show was unbelievable. And like, the stage show is incredible. Like when they did be our guest, I was like, "Oh my god, I have never seen all of this stuff moving as quickly as it was. Mm. All the staging to it, the amount of people that came on, you know." And then we had champagne blown in our faces. Um, but yeah, we didn't have it quite like that. But I did it as an amateur show, and by the final night, because people like word had got round, we got a standing ovation for be uh, for be our guest at the beginning. <laughs> so the guy playing Lumiere, you hear the. standing ovation at that (laughs) point like because they knew what they were about and like yeah it was an amateur production we didn't look but we had champagne bottles appearing from the side we had everyone kind of coming on stage and just that was my favorite show i've ever done probably will be topped by when i finally get to be the lead in may come and get tickets uh but um yeah, like it's it is an incredible stage show because it's an incredible film. Oh, I said this afterwards, and it is just a nitpick. They should just have intermission straight after that. Why we have to have the Beast sing a really sort of dour song afterwards is a little bit yeah. because he doesn't get a song otherwise. Like he is the lead character, he's the joint lead character in this show, and other than that, the only singing he gets is that bit in something there that wasn't there before. Like, he does need a song. I'd really like that. I'd love If I Can't Love Her. I think that's a great song. I was just like, oh, I'm ready for intermission now. Oh, wait a minute, Beast's coming back on. Like, Do you like the <laughs> song that sounds like I Will Always Love You by Whitney Houston? The bell sings to Maurice <laughs> towards the end. <laughs> she literally even goes, and I... And you like, expect it to go, yeah. <laughs> wrong show. We're here for the wrong show. What's happening? You're white. You can't <laughs> sing Whitney. What are you doing? <laughs> <laughs> Amy's dad went to watch um, Dream Girls the other day in Liverpool. We're going in mm, in September in Manchester, 
and he said it's the worst audience he was been, he's ever been a part of. He said he loved the show, but they would not stop hooping, cheering, cla- like clapping, and every now and again going, "Go on, Effie, you tell him, Effie." <laughs> it's like, come on, yeah, be respectful. That'd annoy me. Yeah. Um, right, number four for Holly then. Uh, Lion King. Lion King, number four. Lion King is great. I really, I couldn't decide which one should be higher, Aladdin or Lion King. I think I have a slightly more personal connection with Aladdin, but Lion King, I think, is objectively better. So they they danced around. I also had Ghost in the Shell in there for a while. And then I was like, nah, boot it out. Boot it out. I need more Disney. So that should have been in my own honourable mentions. It was literally there until right at the end. And then I scribbled it out um, and, put, and put Lion King in. Um, but uh, yeah, uh, we, we spoke about Lion King in the Disney uh, Renaissance podcast and the 90s podcast. So we've talked about it a lot here. Um, I think the thing I would add is that what I was saying about How to Train Your Dragon 2 and the fact that I was drawn into the film by the shots of them flying together. I think that's the same thing you get with Lion King and the opening of, of Lion King, the, the shots of, of the sunrise and then swooping over the, the plains and seeing all of the animals are, are breathtaking, very difficult to describe because they they are iconic now as they should be um, and elevated animation and what we should expect from animation so much. Um, I often think, you know, as someone who's studied film a little bit, um, like what, what would you say is your favorite ever scene from a film, your favorite ever shot? And I'm always like, oh, what would I choose? What would I choose? And actually, you know, I, I probably say, the the sunrise in the lion king as the opening best opening of a film ever um everyone knows the story everyone knows what makes lion king fantastic i haven't seen the live action not the live action the cg one the the remake i don't don't intend yeah i don't intend to uh the not to be bitter that it was made or anything but i just don't need it i don't need it because the lion king is perfect absolutely perfect it's gorgeous it's timeless it's it's wonderful the music is great the characters are uh so funny and so lovely um so if by some ridiculous awful tragedy you have not seen the original lion king um from 1994 um get that done i don't mind the cgi i mean it's nowhere near as good yeah We've taught this. Like we yeah. said, what's the point? Holly kind of... I, look, Lion King is not on my list. We've talked ad nauseum about how, as much as I love Lion King, I don't hold it in the same regard as most of it. And I accept I'm in the minority. It's George's favourite Disney film as well. Um, and yeah, that's fine. Um, but what's the point of the quote-unquote live-action one? It's got an uglier colour palette because one of the best things about Lion King is that it is a gorgeous-to-look-at film because the colours are so vibrant and rich and you you get colour changes when Simba starts singing I Just Can't Wait to Be King. You get all the green smoke when Scar's singing Be Prepared. Use of shadows is fantastic. The over-emphasised the over, um, movements 
the unrealistic movements are part of what makes that film what it is. And you lose all of that if you're insisting on making this, like, realistic. I remember Jon Favreau saying, oh, Rafiki, uh, in the opening shot, he can't hold Simba the way he does in the cartoon because a, a mandrill can't stand like that. And it just highlights, it's like, well, you're then missing out on the most iconic shot of Lion King because you're going for realism. And my question is why? What is the point? He still does it though. No, but he sits down. He holds him up, but he doesn't stand on his legs like and give you that full silhouette. Because that silhouette is the thing that people are looking for in that shot. And it's, it's little things like that, little and often that just add up and you're just like, no, well, no, I didn't a, need this. They're doing a sequel, but they're not doing Simba's Pride. Um, apparently it's a prequel about Mufasa's formative years. Oh, for God's sake. Yeah, because, no, but I think I think that would be interesting because then we have no frame of reference to then go in and judge it. Yeah, but it's just going to make Scar a purely sympathetic character again. It's like, oh, look how troubled he was in his background. Scar, like, we got that from the film. We got everything we needed to know from the original film, that Scar is just a bitter younger brother who is cleverer than Mufasa. Fantastically we... voiced by Jeremy Irons. Yes, perfectly <laughs> voiced by Jeremy Irons. And I love... Uh, Chiwetel Ejiofor, I've got his name right today. Yeah, um, whatever you said on the Spider-Man podcast was not was his wrong. name. Was you wrong. said something like <laughs> jelly, and yeah. it was not happening. Yeah, I specifically did say I probably got this wrong, but <laughs> I love him. He's a great, classic Shakespearean actor. He ain't Scott. He's not Scott. Yeah, his be he preferred is the, is the down... It's a sort it's of dour awful. moment of that film. It's absolutely awful. And just that entire film is just ugly because they're accurately getting across these colours of just dust and rock and there's not enough green there. And the sunlight is so harsh for most of the times where you see sunlight. You don't get the shadows when Mufasa gets killed, which make it such an intimidating scene. Like I don't, I don't have a gigantic moral issue with remaking classic films. I, there are some I'll choose not to watch. There are some I'll watch. There are some that are great. There are some that are okay and some that are terrible. It doesn't bother me that people remake films, but there has to be a reason to remake it. And even if that reason turns out to be bogus, that's fine. But I feel like the only reason to remake Lion King was to make some money by remaking Lion King. And that's not mm. a reason. Like, I don't feel they put a new spin on the story, from what I've heard anyway. I don't feel that there was anything important extra that they had to add. I've talked before about how I really, really, I really liked the remake of Cinderella because the thing that they could add was completely different gender politics. Like the prince is an actual character in the remake of Cinderella, a sympathetic one and a nice one. Um, Cinderella is more of a person who makes more personal choices rather than being passively led through something you don't have to love that film it's not a classic but there was a reason to make it and mm. it makes sense I just don't understand the reason to remake um, Lion King and I didn't understand the reason to remake um, Aladdin either I understand why they made remade Beauty and the Beast because they just wanted to give the beast a bit more backstory but i don't like it mm. but at least there was a tiny bit more reason for that one um so i just don't i just don't want to watch them if there's a if there's a reason they're going to add something they can take something away Re remake it by all means so we can make our own decision but lion king just felt as cynical as cynical can be yeah. 
Fun fact with Lion King as well. One of uh, George, it is George's favourite film, but I, and I tease her relentlessly for this. She misunderstood uh, Mufasa's lesson to Kid Simba. You know, where he's taking him around, it's like everything's in the circle of life. And, that, and Simba's like, but dad, don't we eat the antelope? And Mufasa's like, yes, Simba, but let me explain. When we die, our bodies become the grass and the antelope eat the grass. And it's this really nice metaphor for, you know, circle of life. Georgia took that as grass is made of dead lions. <laughs> so everywhere, everywhere that you have ever seen grass, there are there are lions that died there to allow that grass, or that we've been importing grass from Africa where all the lions live because lions keep dying over there and making all this new grass. Um, oh yeah, I, Amazing. I, thought that, I thought that was a fun thing to share. She's gonna hate me for that because she can probably yeah. hear me downstairs. Now. <laughs> Uh, I will. The the best of the live actions is and probably always will be uh, Jungle Book. Yeah, I agree. That's really good, you know. Mm. And I said as well as a counterpoint to Lion King, like one thing that Jungle Book had going for it that Lion King just doesn't and makes Lion King a bit pointless. You've got an actual human character with the animals in Jungle Book, Mm -hmm. and it kind of offsets it in such a way. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, whereas in Lion King, it's just this weird quasi quasi-realistic retelling of the Lion King where you lose all of the fun animation that made Lion King as great as it is. Yeah. Right. Okay, number threes. I'm going last on my number three, so the judgment can wait. Um, <laughs> Ollie, number three. Spider-Verse. Nice. I have seen this film once, and Georgia fell asleep watching this film, and I fell in love with this film. It is... I'm looking at my list now. Uh, it is the highest rated film I have that is not owned by uh, that uh, by Michael Ratt. It is the highest rated film that I've got that isn't in any way associated with Disney. And I, I just it blew me away how they could get that much content into a film. Like Adam said, I didn't really know who Miles Morales was before going into this film. And it just encapsulated I love the parallels as well probably is a deliberate choice from Marvel but the fact that you know he has this uncle character who weirdly is a stand-in for his father even though he's got both his parents but he is just Mm -hmm. someone who he can talk to um I love the animation style in this I kind of hinted at this with Lego movie I love the the missing frames in this it makes it look deliberately very frenetic and kind of haphazard the animation but it's all very, very deliberate choices to give it this comic book style feel that Adam's already talked about. Um, it's very funny. Um, I love that they have the nerve, uh, the nerve, the balls, frankly, to just kill off uh, this universe's Peter Parker, voiced by Chris Pine, of all people. I love how brave they were with the villain choices in this film. They don't go for your obvious ones. Green Goblin is nowhere to be seen. Doc Ock. You get an absolute rug pull with Doc Ock, with Catherine Hahn, who is very, very slowly and steadily becoming a new queen for me. Everything I'm seeing her in recently, she's just absolutely killing. She kills it in this. She kills it in WandaVision. She's fantastic in Step Brothers. I love, I love her in Bad Mums and Bad Mums Christmas, for God's sake. Because she's just... Parks and Rec. She Parks and Rec. Oh, my God. Park oh, my God. She's amazing in Parks and Rec. Yeah, absolutely great shout off like she's just she just she has this air of just unabashed confidence about every performance she gives 
and she looks like she's having the time of her life. And here, she sounds like she's having the time of her life. And I should have seen that this was Doc Ock because she's got her octagonal glasses and the room is an octagon. And you even see one of the little tentacles, but because it's more flappy and like actually tentacle-like. But like you get Scorpion in this, you get Tombstone of all people in this, and you get the Prowler because of the Miles Morales link. And the way it calls back to other Spider-Man films that we love, the way it just like explodes in terms of imagination all over you to give you Nichols Cage as Spider-Man Noir and uh, John Mulaney as Spider-Ham who just, everything he says makes zero sense. Like, what's the, ads? what's the comment he makes about his hand? It's like, my hand, um, my hands are clean, but they're not dry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's like, why did you say that, you weird creature? Like, what, what? <laughs> I can and sing, just, I can dance, I can do this with my pants. Yeah, and just, it's just so bizarre and just, it's its own beautiful. I do get like Lord and Miller do have just a vibe about that, but like it feels very Lego movie to me, this film. And I mean that in a very good way. Like I love Lego movie. And it's like they all have that very distinct kind of humor where it's just, and if um, Mitchell, what is it? Mitchell's versus Machines. That I know I need to watch. If this is anything, if that's in the same vein, I know I need to watch that film. Because if it's anything like Spider Verse, I'm just going to be like, yes, yes, inject it directly into my veins, please. Because <laughs> Spider into the Spider Verse even managed to work in the meme of the two identical Spider Men pointing at each other. For God's sake, that's hilarious! And they're just screaming at each other and barely moving. Just oh, and I don't know. Like I, I, I have no reason to deny Adam's theory of this being a test for the multiverse. Like it strikes me as something that Marvel probably would have tried anyway. But I think. This was almost Sony being like, yeah, we can make a good Spider-Man film too, guys. Just don't forget us. Just um, FYI. They, they, yeah, just FYI. We did it with Raimi. We got a bit shafted with um, uh, Mark, uh, Mark, but that's, you know, they're still good films and overhated. But we can we can put in a contender for best Spider-Man film. And for me, I know it isn't for Adam, but for me, Into the Spider-Verse is the best Spider-Man film out there. And it's animated and it's you just put and I'm gonna need to go and watch it again because I've literally only seen it once and this is the impact it's had on me. <laughs> like I'm concerned about your list now. Mm. Because I, I don't think you've got Lion King on your list. I I said I don't have Lion King on my list. And I didn't put it in honorable mentions because I knew you two loved it. And that doesn't I, mean know, that what that's oh. I, I, uh, I said it then. To be fair, yeah. like obviously. There are lots and lots of films here that we've talked about before. So it makes mm. sense that you might miss some off. And we know our lists are going to overlap massively. So we've got to do something to make sure that it's not te the 10 same films. Because so we've overlapped on at least five already. Yeah. Yeah. Like I'm um, overlapped three times over. So yeah. you got to keep it fresh somehow. <laughs> yeah. And sometimes that's Adam becoming the edgelord. <laughs> well. <laughs> Yeah, but yeah, like, um, I, I will say that like obviously Lion King is a fantastic film. I love it. It's just I know other people like it. Like you two like it way more than I do, and that's there you go. fine. Yeah, I love and I love people think I hate Lion King when I say this. I adore Lion King. It's just it's not. I don't think it's the best Disney film, and it's not my favorite. That's it. <laughs> fine. <laughs> um, right, Holly number three. Yeah, don't shoot me, uh, Ponyo. 
uh, polio is. <laughs> so I. <laughs> Sorry. What? Obviously, obviously. I've not seen it. I can't judge. If you do not like Studio Ghibli, you won't like Ponyo. <laughs> but if you do like Studio Ghibli, Ponyo is beauty. It's just perfect. It's wonderful. It makes me want to cry and smile and jump for joy and run around. And I, I love it. I love it. The animation of the water during the yeah. storm is beautiful. The just so much of it is strange and weird and 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 bizarre, but it just makes so much sense from the point of view of of, of a of a very little child. And our our main character is a very small child, um, and his life is is just gorgeous but you can just see little sadnesses and little problems that he's going to understand when he gets older but he doesn't understand them at the moment like his uh he's the the son of a, a sailor and uh, a care worker um so his dad is is a sailor and is away from home a lot and the mum's job is very stressful being a, a, a carer for for elderly people um and she is often upset that the dad is away for longer periods of time than he says he's going to be um and so the, there's that going on in in the background and a, a tiny little bit of kind of family strife that he doesn't understand yet but as an adult watching it you can kind of see that he's he's going to slowly understand um and and that adds another level to it um the the story is is a, a little tiny bit little mermaid teeny tiny bit um, so we have uh, a sea creature who called Ponyo, who wants to be a human and, and come to the land and be free um, and falls in love with a boy on the land, except that they're both four and their, their love is just this really, really sweet brother, sister, friendship type love. Um, and it, it's just it's just magical it's so magical um the only thing you need to know if you've never seen it is that Liam Neeson plays an androgynous sea warlock let's call it an androgynous sea warlock who like, maybe wants to take over the world in the English dub like <laughs> yeah it wants to take over the world slash is a nice guy who knows yeah. Yeah. who knows he doesn't use weed killer that's good Mm. that's good um yeah it's oh it's it's so beautiful it's beautiful mm. it's childlike joy in film form and I completely I completely understand why Ollie um has said he doesn't like this style of Ghibli film and hearing which ones he does like they're the big story ones they're the epic story ones Nausicaa is an epic story with a very strong symbolic meaning behind it it's about uh, uh environmentalism and how we're destroying mm. our planet um exactly the same mononoke is about industrialism and whether humans have the right to survive by destroying nature these are big themes in big epic stories um and they're you know they all live on one side of ghibli and the other side is this just very very gentle childlike storytelling that is told through the feelings of the characters and not really 
the events of the story. Um, and I, I love both, like Princess Mononoke is fantastic and I love it, but I could just, I, I sat and watched Ponyo with a three-year-old and we were both just sitting there equally enthralled and, and just in love with the story. And she sat there for the entire film and did not move and was just like talking about what was happening. Um, yeah, it's just, it, it's, it's absolutely beautiful to me. And it's just beautiful. And I, I watch it all day long. I could finish watching it and put it back on again and, and just watch it again. It's, yeah, it, it's special. It's very special. Now, to be fair, my incredulity is not based on my own opinion because of that side of Ghibli, I think Ponyo might actually be my favorite because I think it actually properly commits to that childlike innocence that you're talking about. Whereas yeah. I think spirited away and my neighbor totoro try to flirt with bigger stories in there mm. and just like don't quite commit to mm. it so it's a bit middle of the road mm. whereas i know but ponyo actually fully commits to childlike innocence and wonder so i can get on board with that a lot more and i think by this point i'd seen ponyo after i'd seen a bunch of other ghibli and it was like okay yeah i get the vibe my incredulity was I know a lot of big Ghibli fans who are like, this is their weak one. No. So of all the Ghibli films to be this high up your list, I was surprised it was this one. <laughs> that was no, it. No, I, I, no, I, I don't think it's a weak link at all. I think it's gorgeous. It is hilarious and kind of adorable um, and weird. Yeah. It is adorable. <laughs> yeah. It is just, it's just perfect because, yeah, it, it, it's just the view of, of a four-year-old child, really. Mm. And we don't get that in our children's films in the UK and in the US. We don't get it. It's always a parent's eye view on what we yeah. should be showing the child. And that's why Ghibli is so special. Like even the films that we mentioned, which are more epic and, and grand in scope, they're still not this like parent preaching down to someone. Mm. um and yeah it's just different it's really yeah. different i need to watch grave of the fireflies as an aside because i think Ooh. that would be i know it, i know it's grim that's kind of why i want to watch it grim. <laughs> okay uh my number three features songs by Ellen john and tim rice has a score by hans zimmer I know what it's going to be. It's not the Lion King. It's the Road it's to El Dorado. At Road to El Dorado, yep. <laughs> um, wow. So that's Miguel, a... and, Miguel and Tulio, you know, two con artists, expertly voiced by Kenneth Branagh and Kevin Klein, um, mm. in a film basically where they're going for the hunt of gold and El Dorado. And this was, again, a film where I'd watched it 10 years old, um, and it's just stayed with me. It's just one that I just enjoyed back then. I enjoy now. And if I'm honest, when you look back at it, it's not a kid's film. Like, there's nothing no. in it that's like, this is a kid-friendly plot. It's about two guys who very much admit, yeah, we're thieves, we're con artists. You want to tell us where the gold is, we're going to go and get the gold. And actually, it's got some pretty dark stuff in it. It's got some pretty dark jokes in it. Um, Altivo, the horse, is one of the best animated and sort of, anthropomorphized animals I've seen in a in an animated film ever. Like the the sort of emotion and the characterization that comes off that horse is absolutely hilarious. 
I think the soundtrack, as I kind of mentioned at the start, is absolutely fantastic. Like, Ollie, you can shake your head all you want, right? But things like Eldorado, 16th century man, all the time, all the time. It's it's great. I mean, I'm, admittedly, the Wikipedia thing says this film was a box office bomb, grossing 76 million on a budget of 95 million. But apparently, uh, it's got a cult following since. I'm not a part of the cult following. I've been a fan since day dot. Hipster. <laughs> Hipster. <laughs> Look at him say that he didn't jump on the bandwagon. Genuinely mm. didn't. Um, no, but it's great. I think it's just, it's one of those films that, again, I go back to. It makes me laugh. Um, all the stuff where they get to Eldorado for the first time. And again, it's one of those that you've probably seen on like a BuzzFeed article where it says, 15 adult jokes hidden away in animated films because <laughs> I know exactly what you're going to say. <laughs> so many questionable movements in this film. Where, where they're kissing. Kissing, but she's mm. definitely not anywhere near his lips. She's not in the, she's not in the placement to be kissing him. Mm. No, no. Yeah. no, 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 um, no. But yeah, I just, I think it's a great film. Um, it's and my, my kind of my my worry was of putting it in is that we've spoken about DreamWorks and we've spoken about all this kind of stuff. My number three is a DreamWorks. My number two is a DreamWorks. Um, is it an is it like a two D animated DreamWorks? No. Okay, because the two D animated DreamWorks that I would immediately like the one I nearly put in there was Prince of Egypt because that is. An well, real I, film. I feel like I need to go back to Prince of Egypt, especially Do. because of the stage show. Do. Oh, my God. Like, that's another one that I'm very, very sad did not make it into this, because mm. I think I just watched it a bit too late. But it's an unbelievable... Like, everyone looks at Anastasia as, like, the, the best attempt at a Disney clone out there. Uh-uh. Prince of Egypt. Prince of well, Egypt. Ants is another one. Ants is funny, and I think it's mm. important. Like, I think, yeah, like, I, but you've got a bit of, you've got quite a bit of like Woody Allen humor in there, and it's just like, like yeah. yeah, like most of the cast are fine. Christopher Walken is a bit distracting, which is a shame because I love it. But yeah, Prince of Egypt, mm. proper star-studded cast, but not a single one of them is distracting. And the central conflict being between two brothers is genuinely gorgeous. It's really, really, I, I remember really seeing important. it at the time. I genuinely remember seeing it at the time, but it's just not something that I've been back to. Um, and the stage show has been getting rave reviews as well. Amy's yeah, dad went the, to watch it recently. And the music in that, like, I, El Dorado's music doesn't do it. Like, all the lyrics seem a bit stilted and offbeat and awkward. And just, mm. uh, like, I love it's tough to be a god, but there's a lot of we're kind of talking over the top of this because we're not the strongest singers, which is. Not a fair criticism of Kenneth Branner and Kenneth Kevin Klein, but I it, it does detract a bit. The best I mean, thing nothing... that for me is Armando Son as the priest. I can't remember his name. He acts his absolute oh, backside yeah. off. Yeah, He's yeah. incredible. I didn't realize he was that good an actor because I've only seen him before in like Dread, where he's like really over the top and like mimicking Sylvester Stallone. <laughs> nothing <laughs> confused me more at that point, so nine, ten years old, than seeing. Kevin Klein in West in Wild Wild West, right, with black hair and a black goatee, but then voicing the guy with blonde hair in Road to El Dorado. I was like, what's no, happening Kev- here? No, 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 Kevin Klein voices Tulio. Does black he? Guy. Yes, 100%. I'm getting something else confused then. Kenneth Branagh. No, Kenneth- sorry, Kenneth, Kenneth Branagh. Yeah, Kenneth Branagh's got, 
Because they're both in Wild Wild West, yeah. actually. That's right. Point. Yeah, that's yeah. where I'm getting it confused. This is again where I'm getting it confused. Kenneth Branagh in Wild Wild West has black hair, black goatee, but then voices the blonde one. Yeah, mm. that's where I got confused. I mean, if we ever do a worst films podcast, Wild Wild West has got to be up. Wild there. Wild oh, West. Please, can we do a worst films podcast? <laughs> please. That would be really good fun. Please. <laughs> yes, yes, we can. We will do that somewhere down the line. <laughs> Uh, right, number two, number two. Um, Holly, you're number two. My name is Totoro. <laughs> <laughs> so, I'm just going to write Holly's number one in because I already know what it is. Uh, you, yeah. Everyone knows what my number one is. That makes um, up for it, but my God. <laughs> <laughs> no, my neighbor Totoro is, is so beautiful. It's so beautiful. It's it's got the it's got for me it's got the beauty that ponyo has but then you can tell the story is more personal so it's it's semi-autobiographical the director hayao miyazaki's mother was in hospital um with tuberculosis for like a long time when he was a child and he's telling the story of what his childhood was like he said in an interview that the reason why he didn't make it a young boy in the story is it was too painful it was too painful because it was too real for him so he made it two girls in the story as the main characters and that was the only way he could kind of get through making the film um because it was exactly how he felt when he was a young uh uh kid and he was going to visit his mum in hospital and not really knowing and not really understanding what was going on um so the story of my neighbor totoro is that uh, uh, two young girls and their dads moved to the um, countryside, like the deep countryside in Japan. Um, and their mother is in a hospital or a hospice, some, something like that. We get a general idea that she's very seriously ill. Um, and the dad is, is trying very hard to make life for the girls really happy and joyful, but he's not really feeling it because he's obviously going through something horrendous. But the little girls don't understand that because they're way too small. And they put us as the audience in the position of the children that we also feel something's wrong, but we don't quite know what it is. And the children start processing this by seeing a giant, monster thing in their garden um like ollie's rolling his eyes at me as if as if the idea of this is outside of the realm of possibility we've been spent the entire couple of hours talking about talking animals ollie so wind your neck (laughs) all right wind it right back in um uh, so yeah, the the uh, name of this this monster, this animal, is Totoro, which is very close to the Japanese word for troll. So it's the little girl mispronouncing the word troll. So she sees this Totoro, and then she sees other magical creatures in the garden. The younger girl, and then her slightly older sister sees them as well. Um, and they are kind. They, they have fun with them and they have adventures, but then the little girl goes missing because she feels that she's sensed that mum's not going to come back and has decided she's going to the hospital to see her mum, but she's 
four or five and she doesn't know where the hospital is she just runs away to go to the hospital and so the older girl has to go find her and use the help of the magical creatures it's it i i just i'm transfixed when i watch this film i'm just transfixed it's it's just such a perfect telling of a story from a child's point of view i've never seen a better one not even close like like ponyo is beautiful and cute and from a child's point of view but there are still a lot of adults in the ponyo and there's like a big section at the end where the adults are discussing what's going to happen to ponyo and the little boy and so there is an adult's point of view in ponyo as well and i think that's a good thing but there is really no adult's point of view in ponyo in uh, my neighbor totoro it, it's just the little girls and in in particular the youngest girl um, and when the point of view swaps to the slightly older girl, it's really interesting because you can see that she understands a tiny bit more, but she's still trying to hold on to being a small child because it's comforting. It's comforting in this horrible time she's going through. Um, I, I Much like we said about Inside Out, showing a film to children to help them understand how to talk about their emotions. I think for young children going through some kind of trauma my neighbor totoro is the perfect film to show them um and yeah I, I i understand why it's not for everybody that style of animation is very different from what we're used to um but if you like any of the other um studio ghibli films there's a reason why totoro is the symbol for the studio um it's there's a reason why totoro is everywhere um, in Japan and and in many places in the UK as well, there's in basically a Totoro floor in Affleck's Palace in Manchester. I mean, yes, it is now appropriated by people who are edgy hipsters to say this is the only proper children's film down with Disney, blah blah blah. Not on board with that, but um, I, I think it's one of the most beautiful and moving films I've ever seen. Not just animation, just straight up. Nice. I will have to go and check some of these out because I've, you know, I've not got around to them. Um, okay, my number two. I'm going to take you back to 2005. I'm going to paint you a picture of angsty 15 year old Adam. Right. These are my top ten films of 2005: Hostage, yeah. Sin City, Kiss Kiss Bang Bang, War of the Worlds, The 40 Year Old Virgin, Harry Potter and the God Butterfire, Saw Two, Rent, Batman Begins. And Madagascar. <laughs> Madagascar. Oh, wow. I love Madagascar. I Mate, love Madagascar. It's not, it's not even the best one in the franchise. <laughs> but I love it. Honestly. Madag like Madagascar. Three, I would have as one of the most underrated films ever because the colours are great and Francis McDormand's performance in that as the villain is one of the funniest villain performances you will ever see. Madagascar is a great film, but your second favourite animated mm. film of all time behind the film, we all bleeding well know exactly what it's going to be. That's the only animated film you're saying is better than this. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I wow. am. Wow. Because... Hi, Mr. Hunchback. Uh, <laughs> allow the man to speak. 
Well, I mean, I'm going to speak and then I'm going to find a pillow while Ollie talks about Hunchback for his number oh. two. So oh. um, <laughs> it was just honestly like me and my mate Daniel, right? We've been we've been friends for since about 2004. All of the films that I just listed, we watched together um, through, you know, nefarious means, as you do back <laughs> then, um, especially Sin City. But this was like, uh, the jokes just start as soon as the film starts. Like monkeys who are intelligent, and then they escape the zoo with the main characters. And then when they get pulled up by the cops, they go, if you have any poo, throw it now. Just absolutely every single time will get me. An old lady with a bag bashing Alex the lion because he roared at her in a, in a certain way. Running up, like Marty the zebra running away from Alex the lion and saying sugar honey iced tea. Like sugar honey iced tea was code word for every other swear word. Never mind just the one that it means, you know. <laughs> what the, oh, see, Holly's like not the hipster version though. She knows, she knows. <laughs> Sorry, I, I, everyone who is listening has no, no idea what just happened. Sorry, it's I just fine. interrupted Adam midstream to say that the notebook I've been writing my list in actually has Totoro on the front, and I forgot <laughs> that. So I just showed it to camera. She knows Very sorry. Better. It's okay. Um, but yeah, no, Madagascar, like, I can get past the whole I like to move it, move it thing. But other than that, it's just, yeah, it's just up there, clearly up there and I just thought when when we were talking about it I thought no one else is going to mention Madagascar here um whether through quality or not I love it I think it's great it's definitely one of the funniest animated films out there I'll definitely give you that it's just it's stuff that makes me laugh this thing I will agree with you about the third one because I watched Escape to Africa the second one and and I thought "Mm." But then Europe's Most Wanted, yeah. It's really hilarious. Funny. It's hilarious. Really the funny. way they introduce the new Vitaly, the uh, Siberian tiger, played by Brian Cranston. But yeah, Francis McDormand as the uh, animal control woman is the funniest mm. villain I've ever seen in the any penguins. film. The penguins are great. Even their the film is pretty good. Mm. But I think as good. well, probably the reason why it's quite high up is because it's infected my friendship with my mate in that, you know, we still say things like you didn't see anything and all that yeah, kind of stuff. So that's it, you know. It does have um, a surprisingly hot, it does have a surprisingly heartfelt moment in there as well where Alex has like locked himself away and Marty goes to rescue him yeah. at the risk of his own life. That is surprisingly heartfelt mm-hmm. for a DreamWorks film. Yeah. I can't stand any of them. The only thing I like about them is my partner's name is Julian. So it's given <laughs> us... The vision of King Julian, the buffoon lemur. Um, and that gives me a small amount of joy. Do you not love it in but the third one where that, he falls in love with Sonia the bear? <laughs> I, Sonia, who's the Sonya only the animal bear. who can't speak for whatever reason. And initially, you think she's just like a bear and she acts like a bear and she doesn't care about Julian. And then Julian breaks up with her and she looks behind her and then she looks all sad. It's like, oh, I wasn't expecting that. <laughs> Right, Ollie's already spoiled this off podcast that he's not put his favourite animated film as his number one. So clearly, this is where it comes. So get ready, people. Oh, <laughs> oh, he's actually got his pillow. He's got his pillow ready. Go. Go. I mean, I've already t- I've already talked about this ad nauseum, and the fact is, Holly's got to go. 
and I don't want to send Adam to sleep. You guys, if you're regular listeners, you already know how much I love Hunchback. You already know it's my favourite Disney film. You already know I think it's flawed because the gargoyles are garbage and all they needed to do was really properly lean on the idea that they are completely in his head. Um, Drollo's my favourite villain in an animated Disney. It just, he had his, his villain song actually sings about his character rather than just being, I'm a bad guy doing bad guy things. I think it's massively underrated in terms of its animation quality, its music. It just, it's, for me, it is a proper dark horse. And it is the one that everyone kind of looked over and glossed over for the reason of, oh, I don't like Disney being dark. And I, I do question why that can't be the case. I know there's a lot of um, anime that deals with some really dark themes and does really well for it. I mentioned Grave of the Fireflies before. That's something I know I need to watch. And there's another, it's not a Ghibli one. I don't know who does it, but it's called Barefoot Gen. And it's from the standpoint of someone who actually survived. I think it was the, Hir the Hiroshima bombing. And there's quite graphic animation in there when the bomb goes off and how it affected people. I think, I don't see any reason that Disney can't deal with this darker stuff because it gives you the happy ending at the end of it. And that was always the mantra of Don Bluth, who animated for Disney for years. And there's some incredibly dark stuff going way back throughout Disney. And some of this is a bit darker than anything you're used to, and that's fine. And you could argue that Disney are primarily meant to be a kid's company first and foremost. I think they're there to kind of entertain everyone. They're a multimedia business. And this has got something for everyone. And the music is, I would say this is the best music we frankly get after Howard Ashman died in Disney. I really would. Like the lyric, the lyrical themes are stronger than they've ever been. Like as much as I love the music in The Lion King, I think the lyrics fall a bit short compared to what they have in the past. Um, Tarzan, yeah, probably is up there for me again, but nowhere near as much as it. Because I, when I go and see Disney, I want to see a musical, and Tarzan isn't a musical, and that's fine. It doesn't need to be one, but this, it, this, as a music, this is the one I would be most excited to see a stage show of. This is one I'd love to see Disney actually do a live action remake of because I think there is scope to do slightly different things with this with this as a film. And this is the one that easily, out of any Disney Renaissance film, I can finish it, go back to the DVD menu, click play again, and just watch it all the way through again because it's amazing. I'm done. <laughs> and, and Hellfire... I've, I've spoken ad nauseum about hell. And I, admit, I said, I said, I think it's the best villain song because it actually informs you of the villain's motivation. And it is stupendously dark. One of the best bits of animation I've ever seen is when the cloaks are all coming out and they're blaming him and screaming Latin at him. It's just the, the pervasive, heavy symbolism throughout this is just, I, I adore it. It's a really, it's a brave move from Disney to have done this. And I, I am a sucker for studios going out of their comfort zone and trying something that is a risk. This is a risky film for Disney to have done. And I think it's massively paid off. I think a live action one is a good shout. It'd be very dark, you know. Yeah. But yeah. Um, they've done Pirates of the Caribbean live action as well. They can go, they can do darker stuff. You could make this like a 12 yeah. or a 12A. And, yeah. give, and you know give it the rating it deserved because this was give it a U where it's like oh it's a cartoon just give it a U there is some this is not a universal film this is at least a PG mm -hmm. this film 
Like, is this there's, something critical? There is something about the Pirates of the Caribbean films that makes me want to go back and makes me want to kind of revisit them and maybe do a franchise episode. Holly's now... Is that, Holly is is, that Totoro? Holly is now right. Totoro. And, uh, yeah, I'm now looking at her and rem- remembering the walk. 75 minutes I thought I would never get back because nothing happened in that time. <laughs> Some of the best the film- films then- ever, nothing happens. Oh, God, really? I can't think of a point where that's true. Yeah, I really can't. <laughs> it's 100% true. There Example. are loads of films that are just like people in a room talking. Oh. Example. No. Glenn um- Gary, Glenn Ross. That's not a good film. I mean, it's a good film, but it's not one of the best films ever made. It's fantastic. It was in Holly's 10, I think, wasn't it? Oh, it was like comedies. It was. Yeah. That was Hobby in the comedies. 90s. 90s, yeah. less. It wasn't comedy. Oh, not anyway. comedy. Hold on. Right. Um, I'm going to flip the, 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 the order a little bit because I think me and Holly are going to be much quicker on this one than you are, Holly. Um, my I'll number one's Lion King. Shock. Surprise. Shock horror. Um, I don't need to say anything about it. Holly, you want to mention anything about your number one? Beauty and the Beast. Bang. Done. <laughs> Next. Done. Well, this is the outlier now because we are all expected them to put Hunchback. I get a feeling I know what it is. You want to guess? Inside Out? Yep. Inside it's out. your face when we were talking about Inside Out earlier. <laughs> Inside out. When Holly went, honourable mention, Inside Out. What? I like <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it's Inside Out. I mean, again, I've already kind of talked about this before, so I don't need to go into too much detail with it. This is, when I think of a film, I am absolutely, as I eventually have kids, making them sit down and watch beyond my biases of you will like Star Wars. When you live under my roof, you will like Star Wars. But Inside Out is just gorgeous. It's... the world building in it is brilliant. The casting, I think, is the best casting of any Pixar film. The look, the aesthetic of everything is fantastic. It is funny when it wants to be funny. And Holly called it. This is the most impactful animated depth. It's bigger than Mufasa. You can shove it at him. This is a bigger depth than Mufasa. <laughs> I care way, way more about our Bing Bong than I did about Mufat. I'm saying it now. I get it's impactful, but come on. Nah, nah. Because Mufasa had the advantage of... (laughs) Mufasa had the advantage of having a massively overqualified child actor absolutely selling it. Whereas Bing Bong, you just got to sit there and let it hit you like a ton of bricks. And I knew that was coming. I could see Bing Bong's hand disappearing. I could see this look of determination. They sing the song on the rocket and take Riley to the moon for me. Because I, I remember the, the opening short for this in the cinema, because I went to see this in the cinema. The opening short for this was Lava. And that had me bawling like a baby as well, because it's just such a sweet story about two volcanoes who fall in love. To the point where, if I show the camera, I can't remember whether this was a present for uh, my birthday or for Christmas, but George had got me the sheet music to lava with an image from lava in there of the two volcanoes happily hugging and being in love. And lava, the song, had me an absolute bit. 
So I was already an emotional wreck going into this film where feelings have feelings. And then Bing Bong dies and me and Georgia, our jaws just hit the floor as if to say, no, they did not just kill off my boy Bing Bong. And they did not have him do it in the best example of self-sacrifice I have seen in any film ever, ever. And I've seen Star Wars where Obi-Wan sacrifices himself for Luke, Han and Leia and Chewie. So no, Bing Bong dying just hit me like an absolute train. I was, but not like sob crying. My eyes were just streaming and my face was like, what? Just tears streaming down my face. And where Riley finally breaks down to her parents because she's been suffering. She, let's face it, she's been suffering with depression the entire time that happiness is not in her brain or joy is not in her brain. That's depression. That is an analog for depression and her literal inability to process serotonin and dopamine in order to feel the emotion of happiness. Not that's just joy, sadness as well. Well, sadness is gone as well. So she starts lashing out and she mm. starts feeling scared and like being disgusted with like yeah it just it works as such an amazing analogy for kids to be able to understand that that is what's going on she has lost the ability to feel happy or sad and because she can't feel sad which is the main reason i love this film she can't ask people for help the mm -hmm. idea that sadness is the emotion that lets other people know you need help because people can be driven away by anger people can want to give you space if you're acting afraid people will resent you if you're disgusted with them. And that's all she can kind of process at that point. Whereas if you're sad, people want to help you. People want to sit you down and make you feel better. And she can't even process that at that point because she's a kid. And the way they convey it, the way, just the message of that, like I said, if primary school or like early secondary school ever do film studies, Inside Out should be absolutely mandatory viewing so that kids can understand and process the way that they're feeling in these scenarios that aren't their fault and it's not I love as well that they they could have gone down the route of the parents being horrible about it and like being nasty to her they were great parents and they did everything they could and Riley's acting out because she's a teenager and like where she loses her patience with a friend who's like oh there's this new girl uh, who's great at hockey and like yeah no and the person just every aspect was so clever and the way they get across the idea of abstract thought again in a way that kids will understand is perfect and that bit where she breaks down at the end to her parents about how much she misses home and you start getting emotional complexity bittersweet memories being formed and stuff like that and then the end credits where you get all of the different emotions Side note as well, I love that dad's lead emotion is clearly anger. <laughs> and I love that mum's lead emotion is sadness. I don't know what that says about their relationship where she's like the main emotion. Um, and I also love the comparison as well of her emotions are perfectly in tune with each other. Like they, they, they get, did you guys all see that? We need, to, we need to get them. And like Adam said before, men will just relive things in their head. I will be replaying that time I played Jedi Fallen Order in my head and Georgia will be talking to me. And my anger emotion will be like, was it, so, did we do the washing? But hang on, on it's the, talk to us, woman. It's the teenage uh, hockey player setting off the alarm, like, girl, 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 girl. that had girl. stitches. 
but Ollie, when well. we need to prepare the foot prepare the prepare. foot the foot is coming we down we are a death row <laughs> one sir <laughs> and they're like congratulating themselves good job team we did it really well <laughs> and the mum's emotion oh, that was a disaster <laughs> i was ready as well and i'm kind of disappointed they didn't i was so ready for the cats emo- for when they go into the cat for there to just be no emotions and there's nothing <laughs> But there's nothing there that cats are psychic. I love cats, but they are. I love them because they're psychopaths. But um, yeah, they just start, and then it like the one starts batting with the thing, and that's why cats just randomly freak out for no reason. <laughs> but it's, it's such an imaginative film. The way it deals with like the brain processing memory and emotion and everything like that, it's just Pixar doing what they do best, building this incredible world around this prom- the premise that it's so hard to get across to kids. And that's one of the reasons I didn't like Soul as much is because I think they really fell short there. They did build this incredible world, but it wasn't really an analogy for anything that kids had got to try and understand. And it was a bit vague and wishy-washy. Here, the analogies were there. This is abstract thought. This is your subconscious. The islands of your personality are the different aspects of what make you, you. And as you get older, you might lose some of those aspects every now and then, but new ones will be formed in their place. And like the idea of memory being like things being forgotten over time, which I swear this Christmas McDonald's have ripped off with the imaginary friend that she puts into the cupboard and then brings him out because she feels guilty because she sees a little kid feeding carrots to his imaginary friend again. Like, that is ripped straight off from this. And, yeah. This, it, I, I genuinely think this is one of the most important animated films ever made because I think it has such a good message for kids. So don't get me started on McDonald's. I bought um, a bag of carrot sticks, also known as reindeer treats, the other day, thinking, oh, that'll do for Christmas Eve. Best before the 23rd. <laughs> get out. Get out. What are you doing? Well, to be fair, I, I mean... I mean, unless Ruby's going to listen to this podcast. <laughs> We're not at that point. The, the reindeer, they don't No, we're not. We're never going there. We're not. Because you never know. Okay. Okay. We're just lying to our children. Okay. Yeah. We're almost at the point, though, Oliver, where we are on Home Alone and Pizza Day. So very much looking forward to Friday. But wait, does Ruby know? that Daniel Stern was not allowed to scream when that tarantula was on his face. Because if he did scream, the tarantula would have bit him. You wait until I tell her on Friday. Right, so you now, are going to remind What her. year are we in? Fifth year? Yeah. You are, <laughs> you are going to tell her. You are going to tell her. Good. I, I was worried she was going to. Good. I was worried she was going to. I would not be doing my job otherwise. Um, okay. <laughs> in terms of crossovers, uh, Coco from both of yours... Lion King from mine and Holly's Beauty and the Beast from your two, uh, Inside Out from mine and Ollie, and then the only one that appeared three times was Aladdin. So, Aladdin. I'm happy to put Lion King there as well because I, it it is obviously an honourable mention. It kind of goes without saying it's an honourable mention. Not Madagascar. (laughs) (laughs) No one was too out of the box there. I thought we would get some like adult. Uh, animated films and things and we've all gone we've all gone for family films and children's mm. films i think that's i think that's well, I telling t- i tried to do some adult ones like i didn't think ghost in the shell which you reminded me of i probably wouldn't have put it anyway but akira was floating around there for me 
it's a bit like, mm. and like, could I put in a Dragon Ball Z film like Battle of Gods, which is probably the best one? And honestly, because for adult animation, I'm struggling to think of much outside of maybe Ralph Bakshi's Lord of the Rings, mm. which Mask of watched... the Phantasm was floating around. But I yeah, to watch I had a couple of Batman ones floating. Mask of the Phantasm, I remembered that, and I was like, mm, Under yeah, the Red Hood, be... really good as well. Under yeah. the Red Hood, uh, Dark Knight Returns, like mm. one yeah, and two. One. Mm. Uh, yeah, there's some great Batman ones out there, but yeah, I, I think it's just Disney. Like Disney and Pixar are j- just can't be beat. Can't yeah, be and this, like, apart from I, some Studio Ghibli, <laughs> DreamWorks. Uh, <laughs> what God, are the right. things we have to watch from each other's lists? So you two have uh, to watch Mitchell's versus Mitchell. Yeah, I need to watch Mitchell's. Uh, I don't think um, this. I think I would say Iron Giant for you, Hall. Yeah. Yes. Definitely. Oh my God, Hulk! Yeah. It's yeah. amazing. I've heard very close. good things, and I will have to watch it. Yeah. Zootopia. Yeah, other than that, I've seen it as well. Oh, but... I know. I love Zootopia. Mm. Really love Zootopia. Yeah. Yeah, to... I quite enjoyed Zootopia. Um, what was Zootopia? the one I said? I definitely said one ads where you were like, "I need to go back and watch it." Lego Movie. Was it Lego Movie? Yeah, it might be like. Yeah. I swear there was one like after that that was like way higher yeah, on the list. There was. There was. Incredibles? Maybe The Incredibles. Because The Incredibles is... The name is perfect. Mm-hmm. Yeah, maybe. Because I know you love um, Spider-Verse. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, yeah. Right, that's it from us then. Um, so thank you very much, both of you, for your lists. Thank, thank you very you. much for listening. Uh, we will see you next time. But as usual, uh, if you want to support Firing on Film, go on to our socials at Firing on Film. Go over to our sponsor, Raffle Tees, for 15% off your order using the code FARAND. Stay safe, look after each other, and we will see you next time.